Oh, my name is David and I'm in year 16. <laughs> Remedial. Please have uh, John 5 open up in front of you again. Recently, I was asked to take a funeral for someone who was described as a God-fearer and was encouraged to emphasise for those gathered the Bible's promise that heaven is a place where there's no crying or pain and through Christ, families have the comfort that they will be united once again. Now, the term God-fearer always seems to me to be such a piously precarious euphemism to bring before the Almighty. Outwardly, it could be taken to cover a multitude of sins. It's certainly better than the opposite, having no fear of your maker. But inwardly, and especially at a funeral, it seems such a paltry hope to bring before the judgment seat of God. Unless, that is, like our contemporary culture, when God is admitted at all, it's only as the great affirmer. Well, our passage this morning is the next major section of John 5, in which Jesus begins to explain to the Jews their own observation that he is, in fact, equal to God. Central to his explanation is his authority to judge the living and the dead. Let me remind you from John 5, verse 22. The Father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son so that all people may honour the Son just as they honour the Father. It's a perfect reminder, I think, for us as we prepare for mission. Firstly, where the authority of Jesus fits into our understanding of the Gospel. But secondly what the actual point of the final judgment really is and what it means for our lives in light of its coming. So please, as I said, have John 5 uh, open in front of you uh, and we'll look together at this this morning. But before I do, uh, let's pray. Our great God and loving Heavenly Father, we pray that in the power of your Spirit you would open our ears that we might indeed hear your Son, our Judge and our Saviour, and cross over from death to life. Amen. Well, let's just get our bearings. We're still in the temple precincts after the Messiah's extraordinary identity statements that he made earlier in John chapter 5. As I mentioned last week, the Jews believe that God's sustaining work or his work of preserving creation was above the law of Exodus 20, so God could effect work on the Sabbath without violating his own command. Jesus, however, equated his work, in this case healing a lifelong para paralytic, Jesus equates that work with God's sustaining work in creation. And if that wasn't a big enough claim, emphasises his authority to do so by referring to God as his Father. Look again at John chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus responded to them, 
My father is still working and I'm working also. At this, the Jews immediately switch from disputation to lethal opposition. Does Jesus really understand what he's saying here? The Jews hear him saying that he is equal with God, but not just because of what he does, outrageously, it's because who he understands himself to be. Now, there are instances in the Old Testament where the angel of the Lord speaks but uses the divine eye in its words, in his message. Now, that's perfectly in keeping with the style of a herald of an ancient Near Eastern king who would obscure their own identity with the authority of the message that they were bringing. And so speak I, Xerxes, I, Nebuchadnezzar. But here in John 5, Jesus will actually go on to claim an authority that belongs to God alone, an authority to judge the living and the dead. Yet he will make this a claim to authority, not by obscuring his identity, but just the opposite. So picture, if you will, a group gathered around an individual, perhaps like our beloved lunchtime cricketers, or the ping-pong players, or soon to be the handballers, hands and voices raised to the heavens. But instead of that competitive edge and glint in their eyes, picture their faces painted with rage, murderous rage. Let's look more closely at Jesus' words amongst such a throng. How can this man make himself equal with God? The Jews easily recognised the significance of Jesus' claim, even as strict monotheists. They don't merely dismiss Jesus' words as a metaphysical impossibility. So Jesus goes on to explain to them how it is that he is equal with God. Look at verse 19 of chapter 5. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, the Son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does these things. For the Father loves the Son and shows him everything he is doing, and he will show him greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. The Son does not act independently of the Father. He's not trying to be novel or innovative, even in restoring life to the body of this paralytic. The Son's exclusive intention is to repeat the Father's works. The Son's works of giving life are the same as the Father's and their purpose is directed by the Father. The Son's desire is to replicate the works of the Father and it's founded in the love the Father has for his Son. This is the chief source of the Son's authority. The Father loves him. A love that ensures the Son is party to the Father's will in every way and will, in fact, exceed even this healing miracle in amazing ways. For the Son is both the interpreter of the Father's will and the exclusive executor. The Son is the executor of the Father's will. The Son's acts are the Father's works because of the special relationship the Son has with the Father. Now, modern commentators like to suggest that Jesus, or possibly John, is appealing to some kind of 
quaint homespun father and son analogy here of uh, a master carpenter and his apprentice. So the, uh, the master apprentice makes some piece of wood, shows it to the son, the son, oh, look at that, isn't that wonderful, Dad, let me have a go. Now, there's a certain irony in the sentimental attachment that modern commentators have to this analogy because it's exactly the kind of image that the Arians used to appeal to when they explained how Jesus was inferior to God. Augustine countered this point by pointing out, in fact, that the word through whom all things were made, it is he who is addressing the crowd here. And therefore the Father's showing should be understood the same as the Father's begetting or the breathing of his eternal word. Now I think, of course, in general, that we should agree with Augustine here, especially in contest with the most enduring form of this theological virus, and I'm referring here to Islam, which is our modern-day equivalent of Arianism. But I also think John gives us more help to understand what Jesus is saying about his relationship with the Father. If we look back into John's uh, account, his description of the relationship between Father and Son, we see a number of times prior to this monologue in chapter 5 that John has referred to the Messiah as the monogenes of God, the only begotten one, or the one and only, or the unique Son of God, depending on uh, which translation you're using. You can see it first in chapter 1, verse 14. Have a look there. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory of the one and only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. And again in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the one and only Son who is in himself God and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. The monogenes is the word of God in flesh. And therefore, though the Messiah was to be the Son of God according to the Psalms and the prophecies, Messiah Jesus is not merely somehow a human adopted by God, to legitimise his claims, but rather he is God present as human. The one through whom the world was created becomes a creature in his own creation and John provides the only appropriate analogy of how that can be by looking back to the story of Israel. You see, as the name of the Lord dwelt in the tabernacle in the wilderness, so the word of God dwells in the flesh of the monogenes of God, and therefore among us, as John writes. See, Jesus is not really or merely the royal son of David, but strangely and wonderfully, the eternal son of the Father. And I say wonderfully because John uses the monogenes language again in that very famous chapter of his Gospel, chapter 3. Look at chapter 3, verse 16. For God loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And again in verse 18, anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. 
Out of his love for the world he created, the monogenes of God is like Isaac, offered up by Abraham. The one and only Son of God is given to save the world from death and grant the life of eternity. This gift of salvation turns simply on trusting that promise. He whom I give to you is my unique eternal Son. In fact, trusting this promise brings forward into the history the verdict of God's final judgment at the resurrection of the dead. And we'll see the significance of this in John chapter 5. So come back to John chapter 5. Jesus is talking to the Jews and explaining to them how it is that he is equal with God. The unity of works or acts between Father and Son rests on the essential unity of God the Father and his unique Son, who as the Word of God does God's work of salvation. It's a unity of relation that's revealed through a unity of action. A unity of relation that's revealed through a unity of action. What is more, when the Son heals this man on the Sabbath and thereby equates his life-giving work with the creative works of God, that is only the beginning. The unique Son of God is not merely one with God in giving life, but also in redeeming life at the general resurrection. Look at verse 21 of chapter 5. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to whom he wants. The Father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all people may honour the Son just as they honour the Father. Anyone who does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. Now, all good Jews look forward to a general resurrection as anticipated by the prophet Daniel. You can see a, a glint of it in Daniel chapter 12. At that time, many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life and some to disgrace and eternal contempt. And the authority that governs the fate of those awakened from the sleep of death is passed from God to one like a son of man, mentioned earlier in chapter 7. General, chapter 7, verse 9, thrones were set in place, the Ancient of Days took his seat, the court was convened and the books were opened. And suddenly one like a son of man was coming in the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and kingdom so that all people and every nation and language should serve him. The one described as like a son of man is given by God the same authority and power to pronounce judgment upon every people, nation and language as the Ancient of Days himself would. So come back to John 5 again. I know we've been bouncing around a lot, but we need to see how John is helping us to read the Bible here. Returning to John chapter 5, the son's exclusive intention to repeat the father's works, his life-giving works are the same as the father's and their purpose is directed by the father so that he might have authority to judge the living and the dead. The greater and more amazing work that Jesus, as the father has directed him to do, will be to raise the dead on the last day 
and render an everlasting verdict on their lives so that in the first instance the son will enjoy the same honour that would otherwise be given to the father as God. Did you notice that? The most important thing that happens on the day of resurrection, the whole point of a final judgment is less what happens to us when we die and much more that all worship the Son as they would worship the Father. The final judgment is for Jesus' sake. It's the vindication of the Son as the Son. And so Jesus is able to say in John chapter 5, 24, Truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. So in answer to the original question, how can this man make himself equal with God? The answer is, he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to do anything to make himself equal with God. God sent him to say and do what only God can do because he is the uniquely divine son, whether it's giving life or judging the righteousness of that life. What we see here is both an equality that the son enjoys with the father and the unique sense in which the father mediates his actions towards the world through Jesus, the unique son of God. Now, at this point, John doesn't tell us how the Jews are receiving Jesus' words, but think again of our throng of the lunchtime cricketers and ping-pong players with blood in their faces for murder rather than, oh, what a great shot. <laughs> Jesus only had to bring a socially constructed version of Sabbath law under question and call God Father, and they begin all the more trying to kill him. But now he has identified himself as the Son of Man who has the authority to judge life and death. It's not their authority to take his life away. He is uniquely appointed by God as the one who judges the living and the dead. At this point, they must have been ready to bust a fufu valve, as my mother used to say. <laughs> Whatever the case, though, the third, Jesus makes a third emphatic truth statement. Look at it there in verse 25. Truly I tell you, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself... So he has also granted to the Son to have life in himself and he has granted him the right to pass judgment because he is the Son of Man. That strange figure from Daniel's prophecy, says Jesus, that's me. The Son will use his authority, though, to change the arc of history. The Jews all expected a verdict of the last judgment to be far off in the future, further away than the exams at the end of the year. And a general resurrection was out there. However, Jesus, as the Son of Man, in his words, bring that future judgment into the present in such a way that the Jews respond 
their response to Jesus now mirrors how God will respond to them then. The purpose of the Son's authority is to grant the life that is eternal. His authority to do so flows directly from his own possession of the same. Or as he says in verse 26, just as the Father has life in himself, so also he has granted to the Son to have life in himself. Now this is usually taken to refer to the presence of the Father's creative word in the man Jesus, or the divine sense in which the Son is the only begotten of the Father, eternally or perpetually without beginning or end. And without denying the fact that fact, we should also note that Jesus is the one who is described as having the Spirit without measure in chapter 3, verse 34. The same Spirit that Jesus describes in John 6 as the one who gives life. So it does no injustice to this text to read it as a command of the Son for the dead to live, coming in the power of God's Spirit, who raises the Son himself to life on the third day. Again, though, however we read it, Jesus reminds us that the authority and power that he exercises is identical with that of his heavenly Father. If you thought bringing this paralytic guy out for a stroll was a big deal, just wait and see what's to come. For when I speak, the dead come to life. And so Jesus rounds off this part of his monologue as he began. In verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. Well, what does it matter to us that this man makes himself equal with God? I began by questioning where the authority of Jesus fits into our understanding of the gospel. But secondly, what the point of the final judgment really is and what that means for our life in the light of its coming. In this passage, Jesus claims to be the one who gives life as only God can and the one with the authority to judge the quality of that life before God. We live in a culture of affirmation in which to live well, to live rightly with others, requires more than mere acknowledgement of differences, what we might call acceptance, but rather an affirmation, if not celebration, of any desire, appetite or compulsion. The choosing self with its twin goals of self-determination through self-actualisation demands an almost absolute freedom from any constraint or compulsion to pursue dreams, passions and ambitions. And now, as I indicated before, when God in general is admitted into such a culture, he's there to empower those dreams, those passions and those ambitions. The gospel for such a culture is more along the lines that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the self, but to affirm the self and facilitate all its choices. In a little over a month, we'll be engaged in mission together. And even now, each of us has been given the task of preparing some kind of gospel talk, some presentation of the work of Jesus in your life in terms of your testimony. And I wonder where the son's right to judge 
will fit into that testimony, that gospel talk. I decided to change my life because I realised that Jesus had the authority from God to judge me. Is that how your testimony goes? Now, I've heard many of them and they're wonderful. They revolve around Jesus' death for our sins. But what about Jesus' right of scrutiny on our lives? The absolute right to assess our lives. All our aspirations, all our dreams, all our strategies, our mission intensity, our fervour, how well we learn our Greek paradigms, the humble brags of how much we could have improved that HD we got on our assignments. Perhaps the question that we should be putting to our audiences, and this is something I think we all need to work on, is rather than where does Jesus fit into your life today, perhaps we should work out a way of saying to people or asking them, where does your life fit into Jesus' future? For God has appointed him to assess, to scrutinise, to judge the living and the dead. Or as Jesus says himself, the Father in fact judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son so that all people may honour the Son just as they honour the Father. This is a promise, not a threat, because we need not live as mere God-fearers simply Jesus heeders. I became a Jesus heeder. It doesn't really roll off the tongue. You'll have to practice something a bit more than that. But we've got four weeks to work together. Simply by hearing the promise of Jesus, we come from death to life already. Now, COVID has taught us how close death is. Even young people die now. It used to be only old people you know, from the 70s. But death is all around us now in our comfortable lives. And heeding Jesus means that we have passed beyond that already. Simply heeding. As Karl Barth reminded us, we meet the judge who is judges as one who was judged in our place. That is the wonder of Jesus' sonship and his authority. But let us not forget the size and scope of that authority, that we may be Jesus' heeders rather than simply God-fearers.